Only two teams in the NFL ever finished the regular season undefeated and untied into the 1970s. The Chicago Bears of 1934 and of 1942. And both times, they lost the NFL championship game. Coach Don Shula of the Dolphins himself had overseen a 13-1 season in Baltimore, but then lost his Super Bowl as well. That one in Miami to Joe Namath and the Jets. So, going completely undefeated had become a bit of a white whale for every coach and player. But the 1972 Dolphins had crested the wave and made it all the way to Week 10 of the regular season. This is Josh Lewin. Welcome again to our weekly recap of what went right on the way to a Super Bowl title for Miami 50 years ago. Incredibly, a win over the Jets at the Orange Bowl would clinch the division title already a week before Thanksgiving. And either way, it was by now a certainty that the Dolphins would be hosting at least one playoff game the following month. So the buzz around South Florida was building very nicely. There were 70,000 season seat holders now with the remaining 10,000 seats of the Orange Bowl earmarked for opponents' fans and for game day sale. Joe Namath and the Jets were in town for what some were calling the game of the century. Not a bit of a stretch since the Dolphins had already beaten the Jets just three weeks prior and the Jets' record coming in was 6-3 and three, as opposed to the Dolphins' 9-0. and oh. But an hour before the game, the grassy parking lots around the stadium were packed and people were milling about in 80-degree sunshine. It felt like the game of the century, or at least the, the best NFL game of the year to date. And the all-pro safety Dick Anderson was asked to recall it for us. Well, I think, you know, the I think the value of what Coach Shula and Coach Arnsbarger did was make sure that we went one game at a time. And, you know, not to sit there and, and say, gee, we're going to play the Jets in three weeks and, and, and think about it. We didn't do that. We thought about the team that we were going to play. We had the game plan that had to, had to be, you know, done. And, you know, when we got to the Jets, and, and yes, you, you're playing against Joe Namath. And, and so, you know, you really wanted to figure out what and how they – you know, we're going to do. And so from a defensive standpoint, again, Bill Arnsbarger was the man that called the plays and we had to execute. And, you know, the, the key to any offense or defense is um, those, don't, you, you don't make mistakes. And the, and the fewest mistakes you make, the better off you are. And so that is really, um, you know, the, the ability to play as a team, to have a motivation that, uh, you know, Namath was a famous and a, and a great athlete, and, and so you have to jack it up a little bit and, and when, you, when you're playing against him. And, you know, we were able to do that as a, as a team. When the game began, it was Anderson himself who would make the first big statement. Namath, on his very first pass of the day, was intercepted by number 40. The Dolphins had the ball on the Jets 33, just 57 seconds in. Well, I, I think, you know, you, you wanted to make an interception every time they threw the ball, so... Um, you know that that happened to, happened early, and you know I jumped in front of the guy, and and so um, you know that was really come that really comes from the preparation <clears throat> that you do, and and the fact that Bill Arnsbarger was a was a great coach and put you in the right place at the right time. Now a few plays later, there was Howard Twilley once again beating poor Steve Tannen over the middle, as he'd done repeatedly the year before and this year back in Week Six. A real bummer for Tannen, who had been a star in Miami back at Southwest High School. Uh, then an All-American as a Florida Gator. 
He had blocked a punt in the 1969 Gator Bowl, which was returned for a touchdown, providing the Gators' margin of victory in their 14-13 upset over Tennessee. Tannen then had finished his three-year college career with 11 picks. He led the team in punt return yardage. He was a first-round draft choice and had a nice NFL career in New York. But again, he was getting fricasseed by a guy who had been cast off as too small to play in the league. A guy who had hardly gotten noticed at Tulsa. Howard Twilley was on his way to a very nice season for the Dolphins in 1972. So, with Twilley having scored, it was 7-0 Miami, thanks in part to his first quarter catch. But Namath came back strong. He finished a drive with a John Riggins one-yard touchdown run. Then after a Mercury Morris fumble, Namath threw a 29-yard strike to Rich Caster in the end zone, and the Jets were up 14-7. A field goal would make it 17-7, so the Dolphins were down 10 for the first time since week three. But late in the second quarter, old Earl Morrill promptly led the Dolphins on an 80-yard drive of their own, featuring a beautiful 44-yard bomb to Twilly, who got open deep down the sideline. He was pushed out of bounds at the one. And a couple plays later, just before the half, Morris followed Norm Evans across the goal line. The Dolphins were back to within 17-14. We note Paul Warfield was out for this game. He had a sprained ankle on this day, so Twilly and the other receivers really needed to be shouldering the load and they absolutely were ready to do that. Early in the second half, the Dolphins moved to the Giants 31, and Morrill provided the surprising play of the day. With all his receivers covered, he just took off running. Now, for 38 years old, he actually looked okay, getting it all the way to the left corner of the end zone. He rolled over, he popped up, just casually tossed the ball to the ref. And would you believe that 31-yard run would be the longest touchdown run for the Dolphins all year. Not Zonka, not Morris, not Kick. It was the old man, the guy whose knees had long since turned to chalk, the crew-cut backup quarterback Earl Morrill, and it put Miami ahead 21-17. But Namath wasn't done. He led an 80-yard drive that featured a perfect 41-yard pass to Don Maynard, eventually a 4-yard pass into the end zone to Wayne Stewart. Now the Jets were back up by 3 late in the third quarter. And in the fourth, it was Morris who had a gorgeous touchdown. He switched back against the grain. He mowed down a defensive back. He got the Dolphins back ahead 28-24. And now it was time for that no-name defense to ride to the rescue. The York never got close to scoring again. And the game ball went to Anderson, who not only had that early pick and a critical fumble recovery, but he had to step in as punter. Larry Seipel had come in with three minutes left to get one away, and a pair of Jets rookies ran right into him. Cyples had turned out had torn ligaments in his knee. Anderson shrugged, went in, and cranked 139 yards. For all that the great Dick Anderson was able to accomplish on this day, he was given the game ball. And I asked him, what does one do with a game ball? You put it in, you either put it in the closet or you put it on a shelf and, and you know, so you can walk in and say you got the game ball, you know. And um, but uh, you know, that was you know, one, some one one person is going to get the game ball, and and so I happened to be able to do that a couple of times. And um, you know, you look back, and um, um, you know, I was the second punter. Um, you know, I was the second kickoff guy. Um, you know, I could I could do those things if I had to. And in some of the games that that happened, and I ended up being you know kicking off a few times, and I've ended up punting a couple of times. So uh, you know, you just have to be prepared. To be able to do those sort of things, to you know, and again, it's it's the coach asks you to do it, you do it. 
Anderson had been drafted by Joe Thomas in the third round out of Colorado, where he had been a football and academic All-American. He became part of the best safety combination of the decade. Anderson and Jake Scott, the backbone of the Dolphins' secondary, they were best friends off the field, often vacationing together, even though they appeared at first glance to be completely opposite. Scott was a wild man from Georgia with a thick mustache, bushy sideburns. He was a partier, a bar brawler, a girl chaser of the highest order. Anderson, meantime, was clean-shaven in those days. He later had a well-trimmed mustache. He liked to spend his free time mm, making money. Here's Doug Swift. Well, he was all—he was an oddball because he was one of the, well, he and Nick were the only two entrepreneurs on the, everybody else was too young to even this life after football. And he was, he was distinguished by having a car phone back in 1970, you know, and he was always trying to make deals and he was selling insurance or real estate or whatever he was into, anything he was into. So he was very, uh, a business-like guy, but again, liked to play hard, could learn the uh, the prep, and, uh, you know, pretty athletic guy, strong guy. Yeah, no question. Even then, Dick Anderson was intelligent and motivated, certainly not a nightclub guy. He arrived at practice every day with a briefcase, could be found at that locker room payphone even during the season, running a company that sold insurance to banks. He was also licensed to sell stocks and real estate. And once he started getting a hard time for using that payphone too much, that's when he, indeed, got one of the first cellular phones ever installed into his car. So, you had a strong safety who had a strong business mind, and a free safety who was very much a free spirit. Here is Dick Anderson on his buddy Jake Scott. The interesting thing is, it was kind of black, we were like black and white, you know, from in off the field. And you're right, I I was still running businesses. Uh, while I was playing, and Jake was enjoying his life. <laughs> and uh, But when we got in the field, it was serious. He was the greatest partner you could ever have from a football standpoint. Um, we actually bought a ranch in Colorado at one point in time, and, and you know he moved out there after we left uh, football. Uh, so, you know, the, the interesting parts is and are how you deal with teamwork and um you know jake was a very bright player and and uh, you know he, he didn't make mistakes and so that was really the key to to our defense that's one teammate's recollection of the original pre-marino number 13 on the dolphins here's another one of his teammates pro bowler manny fernandez extremely uh, intelligent uh, physically able to do everything that they needed to do and uh I think, in my opinion, as good a combination that has ever played the game, as well as the Pittsburgh Steelers combination, uh, Minnesota Vikings back when they had the great safeties in our era, um, they they were just uh, physically able. They had good speed, uh, great instincts. Again, I I, it, <laughs> I keep saying this, but. Uh, uh, it, it really comes down to playing the game intelligently. Um, and they did. They, they knew it. They studied it. They studied their playbooks. They watched the films. Uh, they, they were coachable. Scott and Anderson, hard-hitting, good friends, 
but so different in their respective DNA. Anderson towed the line. Scott sometimes did not, which famously led to a rift between Jake Scott and Coach Don Shula. And longtime Miami sportscaster Tony Segreto weighs in on that. Well, 72, and then what happened, you know, in the subsequent years is totally different. In 72, he knew, listen, he knew when Jim Mandich came in with the long hair that, that it was going to be different. And he knew that Jake was different. He was a different breed. He was a free spirit, but he knew how good he was. And Shula's job was to not worry so much about Jake off the field. What I can control is Jake on the field. And he did a masterful job because he had Bill Arnsbarger. And Bill Arnsbarger had Jake's respect like that of a son and a father. And your favorite teacher, your favorite professor, your favorite mentor, your favorite guidance counselor, you name it, Arnsbarger filled that entire role. And Shula watched over that like, you know, like, like the big dad. And that, that, that confluence of the three with Arnsbarger leading the day-to-day, was able to make Jake Scott just an amazing, an amazing safety and an amazing football player that when Joe Thomas made the deal for him, people go, who is this guy? He played at Georgia. He wasn't good enough to play in the NFL. He's playing in Canada. How good could he be? Well, he had that antelope-like gait when he ran. He was His ball hawking was remarkable. And Shula's job? was to make sure he did his job on the field and that he played as a teammate and not as a rogue player. And that's what Shula and Archbarger did. And then what Jake did, you know, off the field, you know, Shula sort of, you know, gave us his Scooby-Doo laugh where you laugh and you don't make a sound and, uh, you know, moved on. And then as, as the years went on and, you know, Jake got a little full of himself and, and, and Don still needed to have control of his team. Uh, it, it got, you know, it got a little testy and, you know, Don challenged the doctors a lot and, uh, and Jake listened to the doctors and, and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there was just a clash of personalities and it, it's a shame because, uh, they both truly loved each other. And the best part of the story is that Jake and Don made their peace prior to both of them passing. And I think that's critical. They, they both admitted you know, their wrongs and their rights and what they were trying to do. And, and they both said to each other that they loved each other. And I just think that's, I get chills just thinking about it. Jake Scott played that entire perfect season, including that MVP Super Bowl performance he'd later have with his right arm in a cast. And he was known to have used it for effect in at least one barroom incident, too. He had played Super Bowl VI against Dallas with both hands broken, though he didn't know it at the time. Scott and Anderson, the two best friends, invested their Super Bowl runner-up money in some Colorado real estate, a huge ranch between Aspen and Vail where they could ski and hunt and fish and ride horses. But on this particular day in November of 72, they were both all business. They were making play after play, and Nick Bonacani, as a captain of that no-name defense, was certainly in Joe Namath's head. Defensive coordinator Bill Arnsbarger was the general, but his field marshal to carry out this flawless 11-man defense was indeed Bunakani, the former New England, then Boston Patriot. Arnsbarger and Bunakani would make last-second adjustments all the time to disguise their true intentions, and it drove Namath 
and all the other quarterbacks in the league straight up a tree. Little did Namath know it, he and the other QBs in the league never had a chance. You might say the Dolphins got some help from the great beyond in 72. Before the week one opener against Kansas City, here's the story. A woman had brought a voodoo doll of Chiefs quarterback Len Dawson to Stratford, the popular bar in Hollywood. The defensive players, led by Manny Fernandez, took turns pushing pins into the doll. And the Dolphins indeed won that week. And thus began a great tradition. Each week that same woman would bring in a doll made to resemble that week's opposing quarterback, whether it be Johnny Unitas, Fran Tarkenton, Joe Namath, it became a Thursday night thing. Here's one of the pin pushers, backup safety Charlie Bass. Well, uh, it was just kind of a, a little gag uh, in everybody's mind. Uh, we used to go to Stratford's on Thursday after practice every week. Uh, it was on the way home, and I would say at least 10 individuals would be there. And... Uh, We'd have a couple beers and get on home to where we were supposed to go. And uh, then Shula sends us out to uh, Oakland, but we leave on uh, Thursday, Thursday morning, and uh, we don't have our Stratford session, and we all know what happened. We got beat 12-7, our first loss in 18. It was the 19th game, I believe. It would have been in a row, but uh, that that was <laughs> yeah. I'm not superstitious, uh, but if you if you Shula was very superstitious, and evidently some of the players were, other players were too. When the Voodoo Doll streak was broken the following year, so was the Dolphins' win streak. It would be the second week of the 1973 season when Coach Shula opted to have his team fly to Oakland on Thursday afternoon to prep for that game against the Raiders that weekend. So there was no Thursday night voodoo party at Stratford's. Miami wound up losing in Oakland 12-7. But in November of 72, with those voodoo pins stuck in him, Joe Namath had indeed lost to the Dolphins again, and the AFC East was already Miami's to savor, with four weeks still left to go. So now, to celebrate. Doug Crusam was asked, what was it like after those Sunday home games? Oh, well, we went to uh, Stratford's bar and restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard. And that was our hangout place. And you'd go back there, have a couple drinks, whatever. Um, and then, and we had at one time, uh, Nick Bonacani had a restaurant, Josh, uh, across from the Orange Bowl. Uh, and uh, it was in a high rise. It was on top. We'd go there. Um, it was just all the the thing that the camaraderie is is uh, was so important to us. Um, we, we hung together the, the whole time, uh, like the Green Bar. We had we carpooled uh, four guys in two cars and uh, to practice. Um, so you were together all the time. And it, it, another story on that, uh, all day I hit Bill Stanfield in practice. He was the uh, right defensive end, left offensive tackle. Practice is over. You shower, get in a car, drive back to uh, Hallandale Beach. And remember now you're sweaty and tired and you round the bend. And there were about uh, 
10 two-year-olds creating havoc. And so you talk about a switch from being a guy that's just been banging heads together, and there we sit down with the kids. So that was our life. What was it Andy Bernard said on the TV show The Office some 40 years later? Wouldn't it be nice to know these are the good old days while you're still actually in them? Close-knit group. And in general, for those guys and their families all hold up at the same apartment complex, a whole new pop-up community had essentially been created, a carpool community, no less. So who drove is my question. We switched off so the wives could, uh, um, I drove maybe, you know, two days. Everybody took a couple of days. And because we had to leave the wives with the, with the, with the cars, uh, we, you know, uh, Greenbrier was uh, on the ocean flush on the ocean. I mean, look outside, there it is. And then there was the uh, intercoastal. So all of the grocery stores, et cetera, were back in Hallandale. We had an issue. Kindy had a car and the catalytic converter was broken. Okay. (laughs) And by the time we got all the way from Hallandale Beach to Biscayne College, it's not called that now, you were inundated. You, I thought I was in a coal mine. I mean, it's like, holy cow, how are we going to get this thing fixed? So when it came his turn, we'd all kind of go, mm, I'm not so sure about this one. <laughs> As it's recalled by those who didn't live at the Greenbrier, some of the guys would go to Lums and have burgers and beer after games. Some went with Larry Little, the hometown Miami guy, to Prince Barbecue on 27th. And from there on to the Jetaway, the biggest nightclub in Miami for the African-American players, performers like Lionel Hampton, Count Basie, and Sammy Davis Jr. would stop by to play. But it was Larry Little who held court there. Larry had grown up on 19th Street in Overton, the son of a maid and a custodian. Now he was a star player on this undefeated Miami team. What a life he was suddenly leading. And his energy spilled over to the new guys, like receiver Marlon Briscoe, who was a tennis enthusiast of all things. He had met Arthur Ashe in Miami, and occasionally Briscoe would enjoy a lesson with Arthur Ashe. Uh, Briscoe was a terrific football player that year for the Dolphins, ended up with four touchdowns, averaged 18 yards a catch. He would actually have an even more productive season in 73. The former Bronco and Bill was very much appreciated by his teammates. Here again is Doug Cruzan. Marlon came in, and, you know, having Marlon been a quarterback and they switched him to wide receiver, uh, did a, a nice job for us. Nice job. Very solid receiver. Uh, good teammate. And I got to stress this, Josh. All these guys we're talking about, th- th- this was 40, 40 guys that were just lockstep. How's that sound? We were all together. Um, everybody respected each other. Uh, thought the world of them. I mean, you know, of course, you had the wives that, they all knew each other, which was another tie that helped us. Um, but yeah, I just look back at it. I uh, I really appreciate what I've experienced. Briscoe, Little, Marv Fleming, Mercury Morris, Paul Warfield, Larry Zonka, Jim Kick, Jim Mandich leading the offense, Bonacani, Fernandez, Scott, and Anderson leading the defense. It was all good in the hood as of November 19, 1972. The Dolphins were indeed 10-0. and The Jets in second at 6-4. and Final stats from this one, Earl Morrill only eight completions for 137 yards, but that huge touchdown scamper as well. Mercury Morris, 23 carries, 107 yards, two touchdowns. Larry Zonka, 17 carries for 72. 
The native New Yorker, or at least native New Jersey guy, Jim Kick, only two carries for five yards. But Twilly, three catches for 75. Otto Stowe, two for 31. And those two Joe Namath interceptions and a lost fourth quarter fumble denied the Jets a chance for the upset on the road. Now the only question became, how high could these Miami Dolphins fly? Could they really get from 10-0 to 14-0? The nation was ready to find out because the following week, the Monday night football crew would be rolling into town. The one national spotlight game the team would have all year under the lights against the St. Louis football Cardinals with Howard Cosell on the microphone. Miami had just taken apart the Jets intelligently and methodically. Seven points in the first quarter, seven in the second, seven in the third, seven in the fourth. On their way in front of a sold-out crowd of white hanky-waving lunatics at the Orange Bowl, they once again got it done. This is Josh Lewin thanking all of our guests on this episode, thanking you for your time spent with us. We hope you'll enjoy the next episode, and we'll see how those Dolphins did under the Monday Night Lights against St. Louis. Again, your happy final from Week 10 of the 1972 season. Dolphins 28 and the Jets 24.